today we're going to begin a new uh, message series called The Exit, A Journey to Freedom. The, the word exodus means exit, the exit. And uh, it's about a people who uh, we find at the beginning of the book of Exodus, exodus are in bondage. They're in slavery. They're bound. And God leads them out of bondage into freedom. And the process of that uh, is wonderfully and beautifully described in amazing ways through the book of, of Exodus. And it is a process. It's not a one-time thing. It is a, a transformation of their lives that is undergone throughout the book of, of Exodus. It's really a journey to freedom. And uh, we're looking at it this morning, and, and for however many weeks it may take, and I'm not really sure how long we'll take. I've got uh, several of these messages mapped out, but, uh, you know, when I start one of these book studies with you, I'm never quite sure how long it's going to take, so um, I promise it's not going to be, you know, years. I was kind of kidding there. I should have. <laughs> I was hoping that you're... Uh, anyway, it'll be... But at, however long it, it takes, we're going to be looking at it not because it's just a, a nice set of historical facts. This is not a history lesson. It's not about something that just happened to a bunch of people a long time ago that was interesting. The Bible is clear that this book is included, that God breathed these words onto this page through the agency of Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, for us. He meant to teach us some things about us and our experience and what God wants to do in our lives. So that's why we come, because I'll bet some of you, like me, need to uh, embark on a journey to freedom from bondage. Let's talk a little bit more about that this morning as we begin. And this particular message is called A Cry of Help, A Cry for Help. And that's because that's where the journey begins, A Cry for Help. Now, we're going to be talking about a couple of words that are um, important over the course of these weeks together. Bondage and deliverance. Those are two words that uh, you don't normally use in everyday conversation. I'll bet most of you uh, through the course of this past week never spoke those two words, bondage or deliverance. But they're very important words for our study together. And so Part of what we're going to do today is kind of identify and, de and define those terms. But let's begin reading at verse 7 of chapter 1 of Exodus. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew, to, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now before I go further, let me kind of uh, set the stage, give you some of the backstory. I think some of you would be familiar with, with uh, bits and pieces of this history. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments or, you know, the, the, what was that, the, king, uh, the, the Prince of Egypt, that, that uh, you know, animated film, or recently, in fact, a month or so ago, there was a, a Christian Bale film released called The, uh, the Exodus. Uh, I'm not sure I recommend that I saw it. It was iffy. But anyway, um, you probably have some, or you hang out in uh, Sunday school for some period of time. You probably have picked up some of this story. But let me just make sure we're all on the same page. The people of Israel, the Jews, began with a man named Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So when we talk about the children of Israel, we're talking about the children of that guy, <coughs> Jacob, his sons and, and, and uh, their families. 
and the children of Israel have come to uh, live in Egypt um, out of a land called Canaan to the north, uh, where they had been promised by God, this will be your home. He had promised, God had promised to Abraham, uh, Jacob's grandfather, I'm going to give you this land. And so they are people who possess a promise from God with regard not just to where they live, where they're going to live, but what God is going to do through them uh, that's going to touch all of, the, all of the people of the world. So they are people of promise. But they have come to Egypt because of a series of events that had to do with um, a season of plenty, seven years of, I'm holding up five, it's, but I mean seven, uh, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine that the um, uh, Egyptians and the rest of the world around there experienced. And God had placed one of Jacob's or Israel's sons, Joseph, miraculously, it's an amazing story that we don't have time for, but I think some of you would be aware of, placed one of Israel's sons, Joseph, as second in command in Egypt to manage this uh, seven years of plenty so that there would be sus uh, sustenance for the Egyptians through the seven years of famine. Uh, Joseph's brothers and his father, Jacob, they comprised, their families comprised about 70 people. They come to Egypt to be provided for during the, that, uh, the last five years of that famine. That's why they're in Egypt. <clears throat> They are, but when we encounter them here, they are probably hundreds of years after that. We don't know exactly how long the people of Israel were in Egypt. We don't know exactly how long they were slaves. We're going to be re re reading about their slavery in a minute. But we know that it was somewhere between uh, a couple of hundred years and 400 years that they were in Egypt and that probably the minimum period of time that they were slaves was about 100 years. So a long time they were slaves. And they came to Egypt, remember, they came to Egypt to, to be provided for by Joseph for five years. We encounter them probably 200 years later as we open the story. That's important to take note of. But during this period of time, we're told in verse 7, they've multiplied, they've become a pretty powerful force within Egypt. And they've been people of privilege because they were the family of Joseph, the second in command, the person uh, for whom, or because of whom Egypt still exists. And so they've been people of privilege and prominence and blessing and uh, they ha that's evidenced not only in material ways, but also in how many there of them there are now. By the time they will exit Egypt, there will be three million. It came with 70. When they leave, there will be three million. So verse 7 tells us there's a whole bunch of them. They're prospering and everything. Verse 11. Therefore, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. The reason this happens is because time has passed, Joseph has died, the pharaohs that uh, are the pharaoh now in place doesn't know anything about Joseph and how he saved Egypt and that, you know, the, his family ought to be uh, 
taken care of and honored. He doesn't know anything about that. All he knows is that there's a, a people group living within his nation that are getting to be pretty large and powerful, and he's feeling threatened. And so they decide we're going to put these people under slavery. We're going to make slaves of them, and we're going to uh, use them uh, to build these supply cities. Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and that means harshness. And they made their lives uh, bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor, harshness. So now the people of Israel, the children of Israel, who have been living within Egypt as privileged, honored people, are now slaves and bound. And as I said, we don't know how long they were in that condition, but it may have been as, as much as 400 years, uh, perhaps 200 years, which I think is more likely, or at the very least about 100 years. However long that is, that's a long time to be a slave. And that's where they find themselves as this book opens. People who are in bondage. And I said we're going to have to talk about these terms, bondage, and uh, deliverance because they're important to, the, to our story. And I, I want to try to answer three questions today. And the first of which is, what is bondage? The second is, how does it happen? And the third is, is there hope? What is bondage? Turn with me now to try to keep a, a, something there to mark your place in Exodus chapter 1. But turn with me now way back in the New Testament to the book of Romans. Romans and chapter 7. Romans 7. What is bondage? Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. Paul the Apostle, you've no doubt heard of him. He's a leading light in the church in the New Testament and is responsible for writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit many of the books in the New Testament. Romans is one of them. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. He says, for what I am doing. This is his personal testimony. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Anybody relate to that in the room today? The things that you want to do, you can't seem to do them. The things that you don't want to do, that's what you always find yourself doing. Paul says, I don't understand this. My will is to do this. And what I end up doing is something quite different. And he goes on to describe this in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. That word captivity is an English word translated from a Greek word. But it's the, the definition is the same as the word bondage that we will read in the book of, uh, of Exodus. That's an English word translated from Hebrew. Did I lose you just there? What I'm trying to say is those two words, captivity and bondage, are synonymous. They mean the same. He says, there's something at work in my, in my heart. I long, I love the word of God. I love the law of God and I long to obey that. But there's another thing going on inside of me that's warring against that and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. 
Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We'll come back to that in a minute. Are you, like I, uh, aware of this battle that seems to rage within us? Where what we long to be, what we desire, is not the person we are. I don't want to talk to my wife that way. I don't want to buy that. I don't want to eat that. I don't want to smoke that. I don't want to treat people that way. Why do I? Because I do. I do what I'm not wanting to do. And that's what Paul is describing here. And if that rings true for you in any way, let me tell you, you're in the right place because the Bible addresses that in the book of Exodus. That's the theme. So what is bondage? Bondage means that I'm restrained from the life I was made for. The slave is held back from the life they were made for. Some of the symptoms are uh, at least a couple, and they're, they're almost the same, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, separate them out. One is uh, the feeling of like a broken record. And I know most of you don't even know what a record is, but in my day, when we were kids, this is how we listened to music. There were little platters of vinyl. They had grooves on them, and you had a little needle that would go around the track and up and down, and that up and down motion created a sound wave. And I know it seems like the Stone Age, but that's how we listened to music in those days. If the record or the vinyl got a scratch on it, that needle couldn't progress in the right way. And so it would just keep repeating the same thing over and over. Sometimes in life, doesn't it feel like that? I just keep doing the same thing over and over. I keep dating the same kind of guys. Why is that? I can't seem to get past this. That's bondage. That's slavery. The broken record. Another thing that almost, man, I, I've been in a pastor for over 30 years and, and I can't even count how many times people have come to me to want to, to get some counsel or help or whatever and they'll say to me, I feel stuck. That word, stuck. That whenever I hear that, I know we're talking about bondage. That's the, that's the sound of bondage. I feel stuck. I can't get past this. Restrained from the life we were made for. Another um, aspect of what bondage is is that we are pressed into a life we don't want. We're restrained from the life we were designed to have, but bondage also presses me into a life I don't, I don't want. The life of self-medication, for instance, where I'm trying to deal with pain and stuff in my life in inappropriate ways that it's hurting me and hurting other people. Presses me into that. Bondage also... Um, creates an inability for me to resist temptation. I'm not, I'm not here to, to give anybody any, any excuses. You don't need one. But you know what it's like when temptation comes and you feel powerless to resist it. There's so much shame and guilt and stuff that follows on the heels of that. But the reason for that, the reason that you've lost control of the gate the ability to resist that, to say no, in part is, is the result of bondage. You're being pressed into a life that you, you don't want. That's what sla slavery is. And that's what we mean when we use that term bondage. That's where the people of Israel were. 
Well, how does that happen? How, how in the world, first of all, how in the world did the children of Israel get into that state? Now, I'm coming back to that in a minute. How do I get there? How is it? Because a lot of you are nodding your head. Some of you raised your hand a little bit ago when I was talking about that some of what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 sound true for you. A lot of you did. How did that happen? Well, let's talk about that. And now I'm going to ask you, you're already holding a place in Exodus chapter 1. Hold a place here in Romans chapter 7. And I promise this is the last turning you're going to have to do to a new place. James chapter 1. Keep heading south in the New Testament to the book of James. James chapter 1. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. In these two verses, James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes the pathology of sin and the resulting bondage. He gives us how this happens. And let me just walk you through that because we need this information. We need to understand this. First of all, there's a need. A need. It says that I, I'm tempted when I'm drawn away or enticed by, because of desire. Desire exists in you because there's a need, an unfulfilled need. What temptation appeals to when the enemy comes to you, when, de when the devil comes to you with temptation, he's appealing to a need in you. Otherwise, there's, why bother? You, know, just, you wouldn't even entertain it. But there is something there, unfulfilled, unresolved, a need there that it, it appeals to. So it starts with a need. And that need can be a natural thing. Like, you know, uh, I'll just use this as an example, but there will be tons that we could, we could talk about. But usually when we talk about temptation, one of the first big ones that comes to our mind is sexual temptation. God gave us a need uh, for sexual fulfillment, but he meant for that to be met, that need to be met, in a certain way, in a certain context. He meant for there to be fulfillment there, but he, it's meant to be in a righteous way. So there's a need there that the enemy often appeals to and offers a substitute, a, an illegitimate means for the meeting of a natural, God-given need. But there are also... Um, unnatural or manufactured needs that a lot of us carry. And these are often the result of trauma. You experience some kind of wound or hurt in your soul or in your life experience that creates a need. It has to be addressed in some way. Look, I'm bleeding here. My soul is dying here. There's a need. And let me tell you, the one who hates you and everything about you is happy to show up in that moment and offer you an alternative solution to the meeting of that need. And that's what temptation is. He's, he's, he's appealing, exploiting our needs. And often those needs are the result of some form of trauma. They are also often, they also, also often, those traumatic experiences are often occur 
in early childhood. Now, I promise you, I'm not going to turn this into psychobabble here. I'm just talking to you as a guy who, you know, for my whole life has been trying to help people with the real issues of their souls. And over 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 and over, I find that these wounded places that the enemy appeals to with these illegitimate solutions to these real needs, that trauma happened early in a person's life. Not always, but the vast majority of the time. And I can even identify the time period. Just from my personal history of dealing with people between about five and seven years of age, right in there, when you're old enough to make choices about how you're going to respond to things and who you're going to look to for help. You're aware of who God... You're able to be aware of who God is and lacking enough maturity to sometimes be able to make the right judgments. The enemy's horrible and he hates you and he will exploit and take advantage of you at your most vulnerable. Think about Jesus when he was... Some of you will remember, he, he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and his disciples had been trying to help a boy, who, or a young man actually, who, who uh, was demon, demonized. We, we talk about him as being demon-possessed, but really the word that's used in the New Testament is demonized, troubled by a demonic uh, presence. He was in bondage. Okay? And his disciples have not been able to help him. And Jesus steps up to the plate. And one of the first things he does is he asks his father, he says, how long has he been this way? Father says, well, pretty much his whole life. Why, Jesus, and that's the end of what, there's no follow-up. He just asks the question, gets the answer, and there's nothing more about that. Why did Jesus do that? Everything he did, he did for our example. And he was helping us to understand that when we're looking to try to help people who are bound in some areas of their life, find out where it started. And in this case, it started very early in life. I don't think that's a mistake. I, don't, I think that's a key thing for those of us who want to help others or want to be helped ourselves. I don't know. I didn't mean to spend so much time on that. But bondage happens because there's a need that's being exploited, either a natural need or an unnatural manufactured need. And those unnatural needs are often the result of trauma and they often occur during childhood. Then what follows, we're told in verses 14 and 15, is that a lie about God disguised as a solution to the need is offered to us. That's temptation. And I'll bet you've not thought about the fact that when you are tempted, what it really is is a lie about God wrapped up in a, in a, a disguised as a solution to your need. The lie is, well, God, you're on your own. God's not coming through for you. He's not going to take care of this for you. You've got to figure this out for yourself. Or here, let me help you. So there's a lie about God that gives temptation power. If I know that God is for me, he's on my side, he will meet my needs, and that's settled and secure in my... I will, temptation bounces off. But because of that, that lie that's in there, it has power. And when I... It says here, and I didn't write this, you, you understand. I didn't write James. I mean, the book of James. James did, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he uses the language of sexual intercourse and gestation and he he says that 
Sin happens when I open myself up to the penetration of this uh, lie disguised as a solution to my need that's being offered to me. And when I do, something is conceived in me. And when that something, when that sin, he says it's sin, when that something that gets conceived in me is left to gestate, come to term, it's not addressed, not, it's unaborted. Listen, that's why when you find yourself having opened to that kind of thing, take action now. Be listening for the voice of this, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and respond to him now because unaddressed, unaborted, that thing gestates and becomes full grown, it says there, and brings forth death. And that death is synonymous with bondage. That's, that's how this happens. That's how it happens for you. That's how it happened for the children of Israel. Let me talk to you about that for a minute. Because a lot of us, I think we just kind of skip over this thing. How did they end up as slaves? We just know they were slaves and we focus on God's dramatic uh, deliverance of them. And, and that's great. But a question that needs to be answered is, how did they get there? Because God said to, to Israel's, uh, or to uh, Joseph's great-great-grandfather, uh, Abraham, uh, your people, when he was giving them the promise of the land of Canaan and how he's going to use them to bless the whole world, he says, your people are going to be enslaved. He told him that. But God declaring what was going to happen didn't mean he, he made it happen. And I know we get into the whole issue of God's sovereignty and everything else, and I'm not going to go there. But God, what I'm trying to say is that God did not send his people into slavery. He sent them to Egypt to be protected, preserved during a season of famine that was touching most of the world for five years. But they were there hundreds of years. What happened? How did that happen? We need to know. I think the trauma of famine created a need in, in uh, the national life of Israel early in their life, kind of parallel to what happens with people. Early in their life, they, as a nation, when there's only 70 of them, they are, they are, they are uh, impacted by the trauma of famine. I, I've never lived through that. I don't want to live through famine. I don't want to be in that state where, I, where I'm desperate for food, but they were. I think it impacted them in a way that created a need. And I think the enemy came along and said, wrapped up in this thing of, of, here, you can be provided for and protected. Egypt will solve your problem. And inside of there was, you kind of on your own, God's, you know, not going to come through for you, but Egypt will take care of you. And I think that what God meant Actually, to be a blessing to them became something quite distorted because uh, there was a need that was appealed to by, by the enemy. Now, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. It doesn't really going to change much of anything. But to me, because I'll tell you some more. I, you know, when you live among an idolatrous people, the Egyptians, they, they worshipped many gods. They had a pantheon of gods. When you live in that context, when you're there 
even though you are kind of separate and you have your own, you're, you're an honored guest of these people, there's something that can, especially if your heart's not in the right place, where it can kind of seep into and sort of, especially over time when you lose track of your history and you just, you, you start to be kind of open. Let me tell you what, you know, when Moses, the guy that God will use to deliver Egypt, when he has this encounter with God at the burning bush, you all know about that. And God says to them, I'm going to send you to, to free my people. You know what Moses says? He says, which God are you? Who are you? Which God shall I say sent me? There's something that has seeped into the consciousness and awareness of the people of Israel that is kind of just like every other time in their history when they've been slaves. Because this is the first of many. All through the book of Judges, on and on, the people of Israel at various times were enslaved by other nations. And it was always, always the result of them forsaking God and embracing idolatry. Every single time. I don't believe that the Egyptian slavery was a result of anything else but that. They get ready and they, they, we're going to be reading about this amazing way that God leads them out of, of their bondage. And they come to Mount Sinai where they receive the Ten Commandments. And that fast, that fast, just because Moses is you know, hanging out on the mountain a little longer than they thought he should, they make a, a golden calf and start worshiping a golden calf. How is that even possible except that you already have in the way that you think about things uh, this distorted, idolatrous picture? I believe the people of Israel find themselves in bondage the same way you and I do. And that doesn't really help us very much. But... I don't know where I am. What is bondage? How does it happen? Here we go. Is there hope? This is what helps us. And the answer to that is yes. Now I'm going to take you back to Romans chapter 7. So I hope you left a, a, a trail of breadcrumbs there so you can get back. Romans chapter 7. Remember Paul, he says, man, I don't know what's going on with me. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I always do. The things... The things I want to do, those are the things I never do. There's this war going on inside with me between what my heart longs for and this other thing that's in me that's warring against that. And then verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer to that question. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This isn't something I have to solve myself. This isn't something I need to deliver myself from. There'll be a process that he will lead me through, but Jesus is the one who leads me from bondage to freedom. Now back, follow the breadcrumbs back to Exodus chapter 1. We left off with the description of the children of Israel and the harshness and severity of their bondage. Now verse 23. Now it happened in, uh, excuse me, verse 23 of chapter 2. Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel, it groaned because of their bondage and they cried out 
And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant or his promise or his agreement with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. I don't know why it wasn't until this point at the passing or the, the transition from one Pharaoh to another that the people of Israel cry out to God. I just know in my own life that there have been many times when I have lingered in that state of bondage until it became so severe that I, I had no other choice but to cry out to God. You know what? If I were God, I would say, hey, man, you had your chance. I mean, seriously, wouldn't you? I mean, really, I've been. But he doesn't ever. And when they come to him in all of what, in my view, is their sin, their embracing of an idolatrous culture and getting fat and happy in Egypt, when they finally, when it gets severe enough and they come to God, there's no casting out, there's no scolding, there's, no, there's just a God who acknowledges them, who hears their cry. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what, that's what Paul said. We have a God who is hearing our cry when we cry out to him. I want you to know what, notice one other thing before I let you go today. We didn't read it. But chapter 2, we, we read the end of chapter 2, right? Last three verses of chapter 2. The whole first part of chapter 2 is all about the story of Moses and God introducing us to this man he's going, he, who he is going to use to lead the people from bondage into freedom. We're introduced to his story and it's a miraculous story of how he is saved from death. And so God is setting up this thing that's going to happen. And here's what, what often we don't notice is that before the people cried out for help, God was already setting things in motion to deliver them. He was already preparing the deliverer. He was already arranging, orchestrating, and engineering their deliverance from bondage before they even cared enough to cry out and ask for help. You and I today, whatever state you may be in, whatever area of your life seems stuck, bound up, there's a God in heaven who is already, already, provided the means for your deliverance. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. He's there. He's here. And he's powerful. This is recording number 11143 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, February 1, 2015. This is the first message in a series titled, The Exit. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, A Cry for Help.